We're in the middle of a, of a month of emphasis, and I want to just give you a heads up that as we transition a bit in the next two weeks, to, today and next Sunday, um, we're going to be uh, speaking with and hearing people uh, who serve God overseas. And because of where they serve, um, believe it or not, um, there are places in the world that you can't talk about Jesus, okay? And so because of that, there's some vocabulary we're going to change and not use. Like, we're not going to use last names um, and other words or the countries where they're going uh, because these could create flags that could create persecution for them, okay? And I felt it was important for me to explain that to you because we don't understand that in America. We have certain rights and freedoms that we, uh, even though we get frustrated politically and all those kinds of things, we still have those rights and freedoms, but there are a lot of countries around the world that don't. And so you're going to hear from a couple of uh, ministers who, um, who are going to countries where those freedoms don't exist. And so we want to be sensitive to that and respect that because uh, I don't want to encourage persecution on myself, and we certainly don't want to uh, encourage that for people we love, <clears throat> right? Amen. Well, at the end of the month, next, uh, which is next Sunday, where's November gone? It's crazy. Um, we're going to be taking up faith promises, like the video said, and there's a card in front of the pew, uh, in the pew in front of you. <clears throat> it's simply this: What would God put on your heart to contribute um, a promise you can make financially to help uh, ministers overseas? Okay. Um, uh, it's the heart of God. These folks leave everything familiar to them and they go to unknown places in order to do God's work and they need our help to get there. And so what this does, it just says, hey, looking at my budget, uh, giving prayerful consideration, God, what are you tugging at? Um, I'm going to promise to do this every month. And we'll take those at the end of the month, we'll add them all up and then we'll make promises to the people that we support. Amen? And so next week, we'll, at the end of church, we're going to collect those. So I just, we put them there today, so if you wanted to take them home to remind yourself, put it on your refrigerator, those kinds of things to be considering it, that would be, that would be wonderful. <clears throat> well, uh, um, this morning, I'm, I'm excited for uh, Anthony. I, I, I grew up calling him Tony because I know his parents, but uh, he introduces himself as Anthony. So uh, uh, Anthony and his wife Ashley are with us and their, and their baby, and so I'm going to invite Anthony to come up and speak to you. When he's done, we're going to come up and ask him a few questions, them a few questions. So Anthony, it's great, great to have you with us. Give him a warm welcome. Good morning. Is my mic on? Okay, great. Um, I'll begin by saying if this is your first Sunday here or your first time joining us online, come back next week. It'll probably be better. We'll be hearing from somebody else. Uh, the other thing I'll admit is that usually, because we're not getting interviewed at the end of service, my wife speaks first, which is always better for me, because after people meet her, they're much more willing to tolerate me, so uh, give me a little grace today. Uh, I'd like to start by sharing with you guys a story, a true story, the story of Juhayman al-Ataibi. Juhayman was born in September of 1936 in the heart of Saudi Arabia, in the province of Al-Qasim. Consistent with its centrality, the province is still known for its deep religious observance, matched by its plethora of palms, juicy dates, tangy grapes, sweet lemons, and royal pomegranates. Jehaman's story is woven together like the tent he was born in. 
like the tents of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As a child, he especially looked forward to evenings when the whole extended family would gather. Wrapped in the warm throng of familiar voices, Johaman sat aglow, listening to gossiping aunts, arguing uncles, and laughing cousins. After the, feel, after the meal, his father, Muhammad ibn Saif, would call Johaman to come sit by him. A hush would follow. The mounting anticipation interrupted only by the whispering wind. Cold desert nights and cardamom coffee mixed with raspy tellings of Antara. A great warrior poet born a slave who overcame for the sake of love, winning not only his bride, but a whole people. From an early age, he learned how his grandfather, Sultan bin Bayad, had fought in the Battle of Sibelia against King Abdul Aziz of the House of Saud, shunning Western influences and technology as destroying and compromising the faith of the Prophet. Jehaman's grandfather and his coalition charged modern machine guns on the backs of camels. They were the last to do so. Their courage was matched by the massacre. They gave their lives for God and that others might know him as they did. These threads strung together by great dunes, vast silences, and dawn prayer came together to instill in young Jehaman a profound sense of purpose. Years later, frustrated by the nation's continuing departure from the tenets of Islam, Jehaman led a small protest for which he was imprisoned. That night, locked away in a cellar, he received a vision of the rightly guided one, the Mahadi, the promised messianic figure who will rid the world of injustice and establish the kingdom of God. And so he declared what God had made known to him, that his brother-in-law, Muhammad Abdullah al-Khatani, was that very redeemer. Less than a year later, in 1979, the two of them, leading hundreds of armed men, stormed the great mosque of Mecca, calling the nation to repentance. They held out for two weeks before Saudi special forces, with the assistance of French commandos, reclaimed the compound. Juhayman lost the battle, but he won the war. The capture of Islam's holiest site led King Khaled to implement a stricter enforcement of Islamic law. He gave the guardians of the Quran more power over the next decade and encouraged and strengthened the ulama, the religious police. Saudi Arabia returned to Allah with renewed vigor. And for this, Jehaman Allah Taibi paid with his life. And he did so willingly. After his capture, he was sentenced to death by beheading. His last words, as a good Muslim should be, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Juhayman gave his life to deny Christ. I took a health class in high school, and I learned a lot of things, but I only remember one. If you're having a crisis or in a state of emergency and there's a crowd of people, you have to single someone out and ask them to do something. Call for help, get a bucket, whatever. Otherwise, everyone standing around will default to the assumption that someone else is already doing something about the problem. That's kind of how the church thinks about missions. We assume someone else is doing something about the problem. But today, I hope we'll see that God has actually claimed that problem, and he has not singled out a few or just one, but he has called a whole people to this purpose. Look with me today in Exodus 19, 1 through 6. If you have your Bible or if your phone, click on Exodus 19, 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen 
what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. We'll pause. This is God's introduction. He is reminding Moses and Israel who he is. His person, his personality, and his character. No doubt you are familiar with the ten plagues of the, of the Exodus account, and if you haven't read them, perhaps you've seen Joseph, the film. It's a great one. These ten plagues echo the ten times God speaks at the beginning of creation. Creation begins with light and ends in creation of the first man, Adam, son of God, and a new Sabbath. The plagues of the Exodus end in darkness and the death of the firstborn son. In Egypt, God shows himself as master of creation by its wonderful and terrible deconstruction. The God of the Exodus is the God who is sovereign. He rules over all creation. But there's another very notable story in the Exodus account. When Israel is brought through parted waters, the Red Sea or the Yam Suf, in this gathering of waters, Israel is again brought to the beginning where the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. And after making light and separating the expanses in Genesis 1-9, God says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. God gathers waters to make space for his good creation. Israel, through gathered waters, comes out of Egypt a new creation. The God of the Exodus does not start from scratch, but is still the God who makes new. Right from the outset, before we even begin to try to understand what God has to say to Israel in Exodus 19 or to us today, let's take a moment that he's giving us to anchor what he will say and who he has been. Simply, this is Yahweh, who rules creation and renews it. Understand today that our God has no intention of abandoning the creation he owns. Rather, he is a God that will renew it. Picking up again in verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. This is an echo of a promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12.3 when God says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. By the way, the blessing there is plural in Hebrew. The curse is singular. The operative reason for Abraham leaving his promised land is not just so people will be cursed who don't like him, but primarily to bless all peoples. And this covenant is again given to Isaac in Genesis 26.24 and yet again it is given to Jacob in Genesis 28.14. All peoples on earth will be blessed through your offspring. This hope brackets the history of Israel. In this hope, Joseph prophesied that God would visit Israel, delivering them from Egypt and bringing them to a land that God promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? That in them, all families of the earth would be blessed. In this hope, God met Moses on Sinai and sent him to speak to Israel. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited them and seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Why? They understood that they would be delivered from slavery and led to a promised land that in them all families of the earth would be blessed. Old Testament scholar and missiologist Christopher Wright puts it like this, if Abraham had not obeyed God and left his, promise, left his homeland, the Bible would be a very thin book. Simply, the God who rules and renews has made it his purpose to reach the nations. The very story of the redemption of Israel, the salvation of a chosen people, is born in God's desire to reach all peoples. And now he reveals his means in verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the, to the people of Israel. Israel was never called to an exclusive relationship with Yahweh. But to be a kingdom, a nation of priests, a holy nation, facilitating and restoring relationship, even friendship with Yahweh. And so God's nation has a sacred job, a holy job. And it's not entrusted to just a few. Ministers, pastors, professors, the educated. No, this is spoken to all of God's people. All of God's people are his priestly people, people called to bless all peoples. Understand that God is making a nation of priests to save the nations. In summary, and you might be familiar with this, God does not hate the world. For God so loved the world, we might even say the Old Testament version of that passage in John 3.16 could be, he has purposed to bless all people through his peoples. The image of God and the presence of God are very closely linked. And if we want to get a full understanding of this priestly call, it helps us to back up a little bit and go to Genesis 1 and unpack the image of God. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 1, we see God making man in his image. But what on earth does this mean? And simply, I think every time I asked a professor this question in Bible college, I probably got a different answer. So I'm not looking to resolve an age-old debate, but just find something in the text that can move along with us. And I think we have a good answer in Genesis 2, a zoomed-in picture of this. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The breath of life. Put your hand in front of your face and breathe. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need a mint. But you feel that, right? It's a force that moves but cannot be seen. Jesus speaks the exact same way about the Spirit in John 3. Even as the Logos became flesh, we must see that from the beginning, man was made to clothe God's Spirit. And this isn't novel. The old prophets agree. Twice, Job and his friends connect the breath in man's lungs with the Spirit of God, our life force. Job even goes so far as to say, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. He sees his every moment, his every step as imbibing the Spirit of God. Simply, to be made in the image of God is in some sense to be made to embody God. And from the beginning, men made to embody, mankind made to embody God's Spirit are given a great commission in Scripture. Or is it two? In Genesis 1.28, God said, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground, everywhere, everything, all. But then, in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Should mankind be fruitful and multiply, like God said in Genesis 1? Or should mankind work and keep the garden, like God said in Genesis 2? And I'm sure we've all been there before. You make a mess in the living room. Your dad says, go to your room. Your mom says, clean it up. Nah, you can't do both. <laughs> but that's exactly the answer. Both. Man is to be fruitful, to multiply, and fill all the earth by working and keeping the Garden of Eden. Eden, which means delight, by the way, is the seedbed of the kingdom of God. Understand that Eden, God's joyful plan for creation, isn't meant to stay tucked away in some hidden corner. This command is echoed in Numbers 3, 7 through 8. When speaking to a new line of priests, God commands them to keep and work 
the service of the tabernacle, which reflects Eden. In other words, priests are made to imitate the life and the work of Adam and Eve before the fall. Simply, priests are just people restored to the image of God, who is Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you have a priestly purpose. Let's recap briefly. The Lord God who rules creation is not abandoning it. He's going to make it right, justify it. He will do this by restoring his presence to a unique group of people. And this unique group of people who are restored to his presence now live with his purpose. Bottom line, since God has purposed to bless all peoples, his priestly people live with that mission. A word of caution, though, comes to us in this narrative. And it's split up by 12 chapters, so it's easy to miss. But in Exodus 19, we have a mountain peak moment where God descends and gives Israel a priestly commission. The following chapters unpack the rest of those commandments, but Exodus 32 closely follows, and and it comes with a caution. Israel makes a golden calf and and declares in Exodus 32, 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. In this strange episode of the golden calf in Exodus 32, they have identified their idol as the God who introduced himself in Exodus 19. They know God is creator and savior. They know God is not abandoning his creation, but renewing it. They know God's mission is for the nation. They know God's name is Yahweh, the I am that I am, the never-changing, ever-faithful God. The terrifying thing about this scene is not what Israel got wrong. It's how much they got right. Church, and I say this in love, one way or another, your God suits you. You will be transformed as you exalt Christ, or you will become as debased as the object of your worship. If our Jesus is more concerned with our fleeting desires than his glory, if our Jesus is more concerned with our comfort than his cross, if our Jesus cares more about our financial security than our sacrifice, if our Jesus cares more about our ministry than his mission, if our Jesus prioritizes our family over the many he died for, we have crowned a calf and named it Christ. And it will show in our lives and the lives of our children. And it will cost us our priestly purpose. But, If we worship God for who he is, if we choose him, then we do have a job to do. Before I conclude, I'd like to read this instrumental passage in in Genesis 12 again. And this is really, Genesis 1 through 11 is is a tragedy. And, And the turning point in scripture comes in Genesis 12 with this promise. And it reaches its climax in Jesus. And this is the promise. I'm reading it straight from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord God said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. In 1976, in Framingham, Massachusetts, a car struck a young woman. The impact broke the bones in her face and left her a paraplegic. A word borrowed from Ionic Greek, meaning half-stricken. In addition to the loss of mobility due to the nature of the injury, she was told she would likely never have children. That same year, in 1976, a young man attended a small Baptist fellowship. After the service, the pastor asked him to wait in his office, a closet with a desk. 
The girthy preacher squeezed through the door and insisted the young man make a formal commitment to Christ. With no escape, he did as he was told. That same year, in 1976, children were born in the mountains of a rainforest, a place with no electricity, no running water, no roads, no cars, no clinic, speaking a language with no word for hope. As every year before, every child born was called by his or her order of birth, Ano or Amunga, Amunga or Ona. These are titles, not names. In translation, these children are addressed as first son, first daughter, second son, second daughter, third son, and so on. In 1979, the young man and the young woman, Neil and Kathy, graduated from UMass Lowell and married. For nine years, they paid off their college debt. For nine years, they tried and failed to have a child. In 1988, Neil and Kathy, like Abraham and his barren Sarai, left from country and kindred, from the home of, homes of their fathers, and went to a land far away in Asia Pacific, to an island called Papua New Guinea. They came to the mountains of Morobe, to the Mesim people, to a place called Samanzing, a village built on a precipice between two steep green mountains, a place where the children are called first son, first daughter, second son, second daughter. Early relationships flourished. With the aim of translating the New Testament, Neil and Kathy began to learn the unwritten language of the Mesim and started to develop an alphabet for that unwritten language. They turned their home into a bi-weekly clinic and their meager living room into a 24-hour emergency room. They shared stories and food, sat around fire pits for hours as the Mesim recounted their long family histories. Histories of first sons, second sons, first daughters, second daughters. It was around these fires in wooden and bamboo huts, that Neil and Kathy learned that the Mesim do, in fact, give their children true names. They also taught their children that anyone who learns your true name can use, control, and end your life. True names are so powerful, husbands and wives would live and die without knowing the name of their spouse. A true name must never be shared with another. This reality reflected the fear the Mesim were born into. A people with no word for hope, who called their children First son, first daughter, second son, second daughter. Though early relationships came easy, attitudes changed. Villagers became cold, distant, afraid, even hostile. Because of Kathy's repeated failure to have a first son or a first daughter, the Mesim came to believe that the spirit Neil and her spoke of was not welcome among the spirits of the rainforest. Unless a hopelessly barren couple gave birth to a child, the Mesim would remain hopeless. So Neil and Kathy tried for a child. Then another, and another, and another. Five miscarriages later, when Kathy was pregnant for the sixth time, Neil dared not hope. Nine months later, to the surprise of the Mesim and European doctors, in Anno, a first son was born. Neil took his Isaac up the steep stairs of every bamboo and wood hut to the threshold of every door and lay his firstborn down. Again and again, he gave his son so that a people with no hope would receive the Father. He called me his goodwill grenade. Twenty years later, in 2011, Neil and Kathy finished their translation of the Messam New Testament. The Messam learned of a first son, a true miracle child, a son who gave not only the power of his name, but shared even his own life. Hope was born, and his name was Yesu, Jesus. Early in these years, a friend called Secondborn Son shook off the shackles of fear and death, and embrace the hope we have in Jesus. The year the New Testament was finished, second-born son gave birth to his first-born son. 
second-born son named him Saime. Saime is not a title. Saime is a true name. Saime means friend. That in him, like Abraham, the friend of God, all peoples would be blessed. And it is to this end that Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yet again, the faithful God makes new. Mankind again filled with the presence of God. Mankind again restored to his image. Mankind again entrusted with his purpose. The word here used for witness is standard in the New Testament. Martures, witnesses. From it we derive our English word, martyr. Christians have historically been so committed to giving witness to Jesus, even to the point of death, our witness, our martures, has become synonymous with dying for a cause. And Revelation 12, 11 reads like this, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. And I would challenge you today. Remember, the first martyr in the Gospels was Stephen. Not a foreign missionary working with hostile peoples, Not an apostle sent to faraway lands. Not a daring individual called to leave his home. Just a faithful witness. A martyr among his own people. Understand that our Savior and Lord has called us near and far. All of us must go. Some to the streets and neighborhoods of Hyannis. Some up to Boston and others further still. God's holy people, his sent people, are his nation of witnesses, even And so Peter writes in chapter 2, 9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Period or comma? Comma. And here's probably the most important word in this verse. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes similarly, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Understand today that in the cross, God is not making a way for you to abandon creation. Rather, he is empowering us to take it back. Genesis 12.3 In you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. If you get nothing else today, please remember this. God intends to bless all peoples through you. Because in this he is glorified. And how good is a God who glories in and loves when people are restored to his presence. I'd like to give King Jesus the last word today. And then I'll pass it back to your pastor. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Well, Anthony and Ashley are going to come up and join us, or join me rather, not us. Join us, I guess. Um, we're just going to ask some questions. So, you go, Ashley. Yeah. If I 
Uh, I said people are always happy to see me after they meet my wife, but it's double whammy now. I'll introduce my son real quick. <laughs> this yeah, is yeah. Elios, and, and yes, he's, he's beautiful. Uh, obviously, he takes after my wife, but um, I can kind of take credit for this just a little bit, so I just want to throw that out there. We had the pleasure of hosting, uh, hosting them last night, so it was, uh, yeah, we really got to... Um, my wife had no problems having another newborn baby in the house, so it's awesome. That's a powerful word. Thank you. Um, question for because I don't think it was clear. Uh, who was the sixth son of Neil and Kathy? <laughs> I was, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So God, from the time you were born, used you as hope for the mess and people. Yeah, um, my mom, once frustrated with me, said, you're a miracle child. Act like one. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's tough to be Jesus now. You know, try it when you're teething. Um, yeah, so, yeah, the Lord works in, in, in mysterious ways. And honestly, I made my dad sound a little better than when he was laying me on the threshold. Uh, he heard me tell that story one time. He said, you know, I didn't actually lay you down. I, I usually nudged you in with my foot because it was easier. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just, just powerful. Um, There's a few questions uh, for them. So um, uh, obviously you grew up in Papua New Guinea uh, most of your life. Uh, and then you both had a stint in Italy uh, working with uh, your parents. So uh, the, where God has called you now, where he's leading you now, how did you know that was the people group God had or has in mind for you now? Okay, I'm up again. I'm sorry. My wife has great things to say. Um, yeah, I, you know, I really appreciate this question. Uh, I think sometimes in church we can use the language of call and it becomes kind of code or Christianese. And, uh, and if I were to uh, translate that into English, I'd say it, it kind of means clarity. And so how did we find clarity? For us, it was very practical. We were working primarily with Muslims as, who were refugees coming through just uh, horrendous experiences to get to us. And I started thinking, well, maybe we can meet them halfway, which would be tough because it's usually a sinking boat in the Mediterranean. And so I thought maybe we can go a little further still. And, um, and it was also, I was challenged historically. Christianity is born in Israel, uh, and it goes to the four corners of the earth, which is a testament to the lordship of Jesus, and, I, and I'm grateful for that. But today, this district, southern New England, is sending missionaries back to Israel. We've lost that ground. Islam's not like that. Islam was born in the 700s in Saudi Arabia, and it has never, ever left. They've held on to that ground, and they've gained more. And so uh, just thinking through things, you know, what's a place to go and, and to let your light shine? A place like that seems like a good idea. And so for us, it was, it was still led through prayer, through participation in ministry, and was affirmed by our leaders around us when we started talking about good places to go and serve. And to that, I would just add, I actually, my first time overseas um, before we got married and we're working in Sicily, I actually went to India. And what got me out there was really just statistics. It was my first time hearing about unreached people groups. What did that mean? How do people not have access um, to the gospel? How do they not have access to Christ? What do you mean that they've never heard the name of Jesus? And really, it just took some statistics for me to be like, if that's the case, then I kind of felt like um, I had to go. Once I heard that, I didn't really feel like it was an option for me to stay anymore. And I think that 
was just looking back, obviously, how the Lord kind of led me. And once again, it's unreached people groups. And if, if they're still out there, then somebody has to go. So I'm like, I'll go. And, and based on what you shared this morning, uh, Anthony, uh, you guys start at a premise where every believer is called or is uh, chosen and expected to be a priest to deliver God's message and God's grace somewhere. And so I think that was an important piece for us um, as a church that anybody who has Jesus Christ living in their heart uh, is a priest, right? Uh, tasked with bringing Jesus to somebody. And so um, thank you for that. So let me ask this because uh, I think sometimes um, people, uh, the average person tends to think of ministers um, like what they do is like this um, holy level of work, right? And I think that even uh, is exaggerated even more for somebody who ministers overseas. So can you tell us what a typical day in the life of an overseas minister looks like? Well, it's going to look different for both of us. Um, I'm a woman, and obviously he's a man. And so for me, it looks a lot of um, serving, serving food, serving tea, serving coffee. Um, It's a lot of hospitality. It's a lot of letting people into your home, giving them your time, um, realizing that my time isn't mine, my schedule isn't mine, my space isn't mine. And it can look anything like having people over all day, because, you know, you can't really kick somebody out of your house since they're there. So you have guests for however long they choose to stay, and you continue serving them. Or um, in Sicily, it even looked like going to them um, and just spending time with them, lots of conversations with them. But for me, a lot more food is involved, a lot more cleaning is involved. Yeah, um, if I may, as I get into that, brag about my wife, when she was working in India, I very bravely uh, was wrestling with Matthew 19 when Jesus said, some men are made eunuchs by others, others become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, If you can't accept this, you should. And I thought, well, maybe I'm one such man. So very bravely, I video called my girlfriend from several thousand miles away, and I I told her then, I said, you know what? I think I am one such man. Uh, (laughs) I think I, I best go places where a man, you know, best go alone. And she said, well, those are the places I'm going, with or without you, so you can come with me or let me go by myself. So at that point, I had to marry her. And so, yeah. I didn't understand why he thought I wasn't going to go. Just he's was awesome. Going. He's awesome. So when we're working with uh, some of these communities, even when I tried to help my wife get tea or try to help my wife get coffee, she'd, just, she'd slap my hands or say, go sit down. You know, you're making me look like a bad wife. Uh, because they, they prize women who serve. That's what they do. And, uh, and one time uh, during COVID, I actually got a call from one of my Muslim friends. And he said, uh, you know, we had a meeting today to talk about, well, to talk about your wife. Well, that's really strange, <laughs> you know. So, well, what were you guys saying about my wife? Well, you know, she's just, um, man, she's just amazing. I mean, we've never met a white wife like that. She's just, she's really something. Else. What is it about her? And it's those Jesus-loving wives. You got to get one of them. And uh, and so, it, it sounds strange to say, uh, you know, that that service or that hospitality uh, really does a number on how they view us because they see Christians as just Hollywood. And so, when they see my wife not being Hollywood, 
um, you know, they started wanting her to be a part of the conversations. And now there's a flock of Muslim guys running around Sicily who are looking for a, a wife like I have. Uh, I told them they can't find someone as beautiful, but they can find somebody just as, as nice, probably. Uh, sometimes nicer. Um, yeah. And, then, and I think it's helpful to hear about that on the practical level in the sense that um, I'll, I'll put my parents, I'll expose them for a second. I, I, and I shared the story with, with the pastor. Uh, but I grew up in a village where nobody else spoke English but my parents. And so the English I speak, it's because I spoke at home. And when I left that village, I knew a couple cuss words, okay? Uh, not the really profane ones. I learned those when I went to a Christian school. Uh, <laughs> but, but I learned a couple things. And it's, it's just to point out that, you know, my parents were very human. And my dad said that, you know, people didn't, uh, it wasn't on their best days when people saw Jesus. It was when my dad stubbed his toe and said something he shouldn't. It was when my mom and dad got in a fight and disagreed and the whole village could hear it. That's when they started to see that it's Jesus who knits us together, who holds us together, who reconciles us one to the other and to God. And that's really where their witness was powerful. And I'd even like to add just that, I, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but I, I don't think it's always clear that in Acts 1-8, when Jesus says that we are called to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, there's no way any one of us can choose one of those places. We are unfaithful if we just go to the ends of the earth. We are unfaithful if we just stay. The only way this church the church in general can obey our Lord and King is if some of us stay and some of us go because we are all sent somewhere. And that has to be a cooperative thing or we are disobedient. And I think that's an important thing to understand. Sorry, yeah. No. So, uh, so what does a typical day for you look like on the mission field, uh, on the, you know, wherever you're at? Yeah, well, um, I usually get past, get up half past 10, uh, especially in Italy, get a nice latte. And... No, uh, honestly... It's really important in that context when you don't have a fellowship to meet with to start your days early and to start them with Jesus. And uh, so I would get up early. I would read my Bible. Uh, and that's an easy thing to say. Some days I didn't read as much as I probably should. And then I'd pray. And then usually it was running a center where guys could come and uh, take showers, eat food, get needs, and then spending a lot of time going out to other homes. And, and one of the other pieces of advice I give people is it's, it's really not just about getting out of your comfort zone but inviting other people into your comfort zone. So our home became very open for my Muslim friends. And so faithful Muslims will pray five times a day. So guess what my living room turned into five times a day when they were over the house? Turned into a little mosque. And, and it, it progressed. They would take my blankets that I would use in the morning when I prayed, because believe it or not, it gets a little cold in the Mediterranean. And progressively, they started using those as prayer mats. And before we left, one of our friends transitioned from being in that room during prayer to hanging out with us in the other room, living to worship. And when you invite people to follow Jesus, you have to let them be with you, to follow you as you follow along with Jesus. And so it's important that we understand ministry isn't just about going out and talking to someone, but inviting them to stay with you, and staying with them even when it's hard. And so it's just trying to find ways to do that. That's, that's what the day-to-day -day looks like. Tony, we could do it. I think I could do this all day with you. I'm like, man, this is good. Um, so let me ask you this. What, uh, what do you do to meet people? Like, obviously, you go to a foreign place, you don't know anybody, pop down, like... Well, now that i got a kid, I'm going to kick him in the front door. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, usually, man, you know, it's harder... One of the things that's harder about being in a foreign context, in some sense, is that you don't have a, a communal approach. So I think there's two answers to this, in some sense. There's what we do when we're overseas and what we do when we're here. So when I'm here in America, I try to engage guys... Uh, really who have shared interests with me. So if they like to argue, if they're hard-headed, we could probably get along. And, um, and so I try to engage guys like that if I see them playing basketball, if I'm playing chess with them. 
uh, and I'm cheating on my phone because you got to win if you're going to be a minister. It's, it's better. Uh, they're more likely to listen to you. And, uh, and so really just in the day-to-day, if I'm already anchored in a place, then it's just everyone who can come into my sphere. And then sometimes making an excuse like pretending you like a book to go talk to someone. In a foreign context, for us, in our locations, we tend to try to provide some kind of value so that way the government, uh, first of all, lets us in, but also to, to really create uh, opportunities for people to be served by us in a practical sense. So sometimes that's um, CrossFit gyms, uh, cafes. Um, my wife would probably do the CrossFit. I'd probably do the cafe. Because, uh, you know. Uh, but, yeah, so it's really just uh, in very basic ways we try to find things uh, where we can meet material needs sometimes. And if they have no material needs, then we're just aggressively friendly. Uh, or sometimes contrary. You'd be surprised. Sometimes that's a good way to make a connection, to tell someone, well, actually, I disagree. I love you, but I disagree. And it's like, oh, that's weird. Um, so yeah, it, it looks different. You know what? I'll add, I think one of the challenges to this is that following Jesus on the day-to-day just looks different. And the only thing that looks the same is the following Jesus part. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know. Probably a little unhelpful, but... No, no. And, and just so you know, like... When he says the cafe, he's not lying. He and Sean would probably be good friends because when he came into my house, the first thing he did was inspect my coffee machine, my, my coffee paraphernalia. So, <laughs> anyway, how about you? How do you meet people? Um, for me, it's a lot of, um, yeah, you have kind of something that you would like to help people with, provide people with, a place where you can meet with someone that probably wouldn't meet with you to begin with. In India, I taught... Um, I did CrossFit, I taught piano, um, I taught dance, and those were avenues where I could just meet someone. And then I am a very introverted person. I'm not very outgoing, but I, you just have to be. you got to be as extroverted as I can be. I channel all of that, and I just make myself really desperate. I need friends. I don't know where to shop for this. Can you help me? Can we meet up, and you can show me how to cook this? Very basic things um, that would create an opportunity for us to potentially meet again, and then just kind of start a friendship. And eventually, hopefully, they like being friends with me, and we can continue a lot more naturally to meet up. But yeah, whether it's I've met people, I've I've met ladies at the grocery store, and I've been like, hey, can you help me find this? I'm trying to make this. um, I'm hoping now with a son, I can connect with moms a little bit easier. That was something where it was very odd to the Muslims that, like, what is an American couple doing? And I would always say, you know, I just want to enjoy our first year of marriage. I didn't wait that long. I just want to enjoy one year. Um, They're like, that's so strange. They just want to enjoy marriage before they have kids. Like, so crazy. So I was, like, kind of not very relatable to the ladies sometimes, and so I'm hoping now with the child I'll become a lot more relatable, and even over, you know, all those baby things, I can just bond and just be like, I really need a friend. I just moved here. That tends to work with ladies. And, and briefly, I also think it's worth adding that you guys hear good stories, uh, and, and I love that because it's encouraging, but when I was first engaging with the refugee population where I was, what, where I was working, it was months before I really got a relationship. And, and that was one, and I don't even think that guy liked me. And probably years before I got really good relationships where I could really go back and forth about the gospel, not just say something. And sandwiched in between that is a lot of awkward silence. I mean, I'm talking about people, we, brought, we fed people, and one time this family wanted to cook for us. They invited us into their home, sat us down, brought us food, but then didn't eat with us, which in their culture was a thing of honor. But they literally watched us eat for an hour and a half and didn't say a word to us. And we tried so hard to talk to them and they wouldn't say anything to us. And so sometimes missions just looks like you need to go to a psych ward. So, yeah. I, I think what's interesting is um, 
uh, all of the things that you just described, what you do to, to meet people in the typical day in your life, is like nothing Bible school related. <laughs> it's, right? And that it's ab- actually, um, it sounds like it's just living life intentionally every day. Like, when you're doing laundry, if somebody's around, if it just, it's just this simple, everything that anybody in this room can do, right? Yep. Um, and you told me a story this morning in my kitchen o- over coffee cake uh, about this, um, this gentleman who was uh, successful, or he had uh, some success, and they were, you guys were pressing him on what was the secret of your success. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, just tell, me a brief, tell them yeah. briefly, because I think um, definitely in a New England context, we can get tired of this, of just talking to people and talking to people and talking to people, and you, you seem like it's just going nowhere. And so just to briefly tell that story. Yeah, and I'll say one of the nice things about going overseas, too, is you don't have to deal with New Englanders. I, I love New England, but sometimes you guys are hard to talk to, you know? They're pretty <laughs> tough up here. Uh, so that's, that's a challenge anywhere. But, yeah, there was a um, church planning conference uh, talking about planning a church in uh, enclosed locations where it's uh, generally illegal or hostile. And uh, there's a fairly successful church movement in a certain area that isn't just... Uh, it's successful for people who do this. We, there's a lot of stories you hear that aren't really success. This one's like seeing second and third generation church plants, home churches that are really established. And so uh, this guy was asked to come and share at a conference who was given credit for this movement. And he shared and they were talking and they had to sit down afterwards in a Q&A. And, and finally somebody in frustration said from the audience, well, tell us what you really did, man. How, how did you get this church planting thing really going? And he said, hmm, I spent 18 years talking to two guys every day. <laughs> and that was it. And he didn't do anything. They, they're actually the guys who started that, that one church plant and then another one and then those self-replicated. And I think um, uh, it's not very glamorous, is it? You know, we, we want power, we want signs, but somebody's got to go there and, and dig the well in the dirt. Yeah. So good. So sometimes you just need to maintain a relationship for years and live in front of people as believers and just let them see the good, bad, the ugly and still walk with them. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, in all of that, how do you see people becoming believers? I mean, do you guys have like in, in your uh, living room at a certain point, you just are like, we need to have an altar call. Like if you want Jesus in your life, you need to come to my kitchen table and bow your head and say this prayer. Like how do people become, how, what do you see? How do you pe- people become believers? We actually believers? keep a smoke machine in the middle of the room. <laughs> The Shekinah glory? No. I think we have a great story about um, it. There's so many they lead to the Lord. They're trying to figure out which one. No, yeah, all three of them. All three of them. It's funny because I remember when, you know, I filled out my application that I could go overseas. And on the application it says, what day did you start following Christ? And that always stressed me out because I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian home. And still to this day, I, w- I just always put a random day, honestly, whenever they ask me that. Because I'm like, it was just such a, a process of me walking with the Lord and then me just realizing that my allegiance was to him and that was it. But um, And I kind of see that a lot um, overseas. One example is um, there was one guy I'd met at a CrossFit gym. And the people that I was working with, um, we were all hanging out with him, and he became a part of our everyday life. We were doing brunch once a week. We were doing CrossFit every single night together because we were in the same class. He was meeting up with um, some of the guys for, like, scooter rides through the mountains, and, like, we were hanging out with him. We would see him at least, like, six times a week, if not more. Um, and 
before I got there, he had been friends um, with Christians for about four years. And then I was there for about a year. And at these brunches, um, we started like having some brunch and then just reading some scripture together and then just talking about it. And then that was it, closing with some prayer. And these were with people that we had been building relationships for some time, for a few years. Um, and he started really getting into these talks after. He really liked it. He started reading the Bible. And we were all like, interesting, interesting. Um, you know, he was still calling himself a Hindu. Um, he was from a higher caste family. And so we knew what it would cost him if he did you know, decide to become a Christian. So we didn't press anything. We just kept praying for him. He, we just kept encouraging him to read the Bible. Um, and he had a really broken family. He, his mom had unfortunately committed suicide. And his dad, it was a very um, hard relationship for him. And him and his sister didn't get along at all. He said all they would do is fight. And he was very angry just because of his past and everything. And um, we started actually seeing a bit of like a personality change over like a few months. He was getting kinder. He wasn't so angry all the time. And I didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, interesting. You know, just kept doing what we were doing. We really, we really didn't do anything different. And then one day he came to us and he was like, guys, I just need to, I need to tell you something. Um, and he said, um, he's like, I've been meeting with my sister which, once again, was a huge deal because they didn't have a relationship. And he's like, I really feel like I need to be fixing that relationship. I really feel like I want peace in that and in my family again. Um, and then a few weeks later, he's like, guys, I got to tell you something again. I met with my sister, and she's been having a lot of anxiety. She's, you know, in school and all stressed out. And um, I started telling her about Jesus and then, as I'm telling her about Jesus, I won't use his exact words, but he was like, oh, dang it, I'm a Christian. And um, it was just funny how, um, you know, we had seen a change in him, and it was just such a process. He just started reading scripture. He was in fellowship with us, and he was really encountering Jesus. Jesus was changing his family, transforming his own life. And through that, he was like, yes, I am a follower of Christ. And he's still... He's still um, a really strong Christian to this day and leading, discipling others. So I think it looks like that a lot, where you really don't know where they're at, and you just keep going, keep praying. And I don't know if you want to add on. I'd, I'd say briefly, you know, um, often we think of, of, like, okay, first of all, what is a Christian? Acts 11, the disciples are called Christians. Okay, so what does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, we often think of um, obeying Jesus, maybe uh, proclaiming Jesus, maybe knowing him, having intimacy with him. And that's usually our answer. Like in, in Romans 10, we say to confess that Jesus is the Lord, believe that God raised him up on the third day. But it's really interesting that, well, Peter denies him. <laughs> you know, Philip has been with Jesus the whole ministry, and at the end says, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus is like, have you, you don't know me. Like, at what point uh, does Peter and Philip, what, at what point are they Christians? And I, it's actually especially troubling, and I won't say the whole thing now, but in Mark 1, we actually see the first person to proclaim Jesus as the Holy One of God is a demon. And then after that, the crowds marvel at Jesus because even the demons obey him. And then after that, Jesus won't permit the demons to speak because they know him. So demons proclaim, know, and obey. If anyone does all of those three things, stay away from them, right? <laughs> you know? like, okay, so what makes us Christians? And okay, we connect that with discipleship, and I think the answer is Mark 1.16, when Jesus says, come and follow me, or actually says, behind me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And it's interesting that baked into being a Christian, is being a disciple. And baked into that is making more disciples. Um, and, and that means following Jesus and teaching others to do the same. So, uh, and finally, I'll, I'll just add that the Great Commission says go and make disciples for a reason. Our aim is not converts. A convert is not success. 
a disciple is success. It's not enough to say, hey, I have met Jesus. A lot of people did, and a lot of them walked away. It's continuing with him, and that's the aim. And so if you want people to continue with Jesus, A, you better continue with him every day, and B, invite them into that process. And, uh, and we see that a lot, where usually guys are walking with us for a long time, and then it's, hey, do you have a Bible I can read? And, uh, hey, I have a question about, you know, John something or other. And it's like, aren't you still a Muslim? Like, what are you? <laughs> I'm confused here. So, yeah, it's progressive in that sense. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're going we're gonna to wrap this up. I just have a final question for you guys, and that is, um, what is your guys's, it, it, you, you each have your own, or it might be collective, what's your greatest need that we as a church can pray for? Go ahead. Um, we, we do get asked this, you know, at some churches, and it's, Obviously, that you know we would be protected, that the Lord would provide all of that stuff. Um, but I think something really good that my husband does say a lot that we would just be spent, that I wouldn't hold too tightly to my schedule or to my space. I'm a first time mom, so I'm figuring a lot out for the first time, and I just pray that I just hold everything loosely and that I wouldn't get in the way of what God is trying to do. And I think that's probably the best way that you can pray for us, yeah. And I think, um I guess two things uh, anecdotally. One is that uh, Muhammad's last injunction to the nation of, of Islam, and it's actually on, my, uh, on our prayer cards, uh, but the last thing he said was, on his deathbed apparently, is let there not be two religions in Arabia. And to him we say, amen, verily, so let it be. Let there not be two religions in Arabia. But may, may that, that land be consumed by the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so I would ask... Uh, not just that we believe God is faithful, but pray for two things. One, that more people would go to places like that uh, and have really good examples here to understand why we do that. And the second is, pray for those, um, the first to follow there. You know, if my wife and I get found out, there's a chance that something could happen to us. Uh, More than likely, we'll probably just get kicked out of a country. But in the places where we work, it's actually illegal to be a Christian. It's capital punishment. It's beheading. And if we're always praying for Christians to escape persecution then who will stay and witness? And so we need to pray for that first generation of believers, that first generation of disciples, not that God would deliver them, but that he would empower them. Yeah, I appreciate your heart. makes me want to cry. Um, Because that's what uh, all 12 disciples died, right? One of them by their own hands and the other 11 because of the heart that you just exemplified, right? So, um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Anthony. We thank you for Ashley. Um, Lord, we thank you for their heart for you, their example that they set at even a young age. And that, Lord, they're willing to lay aside creature comforts. Uh, Lord, and even necessities of life, um, as we hear their son complaining for his mother. <laughs> Lord, we, uh, we ask you, Lord, that you would empower them. Um, empower them, Lord, in the places that they're going. Empower them to be good witnesses. Uh, empower them to uh, lead godly lives in front of people who are hostile. Um, empower them, Lord, um, to stay. Um, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would go before them. We pray that you would... Uh, give them what they need um, to do your work. Um, Lord, our, our hearts are joined with them. Our faith is joined with them. Um, Lord, we ask 
for the things they didn't ask for. We ask for provision. We ask for protection. We ask for your presence. Um, uh, and Lord, we, um, uh, we are honored by, by their commitment to you. And so, Lord, we just pray for them. We lift them up to you this morning in your precious name. Amen. 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 You're welcome. So, uh, church, feel free. There's a table in the back. Um, ask questions. Uh, pick their brain. Um, get to know them better. Uh, also, I encourage you, if you would like to give to them specifically for, uh, for their ministry, you can, uh, you can write a check. Um, or you can put cash in an envelope, and in the memo you can write uh, you can write Anthony and Ashley, or Anthony or Ashley. We'll we'll be able to figure that out if you're giving online. Um, you can put it in the memo, and we'll get that as well. And everything that we collect today will go directly uh, to them. So, uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. May what has been said impact us and uh, affect our own lives as we pursue you, Lord. In your name, Amen. Amen. God bless the church.